Welcome to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk. Here's your host, Jason Davis. Good morning, everybody. Happy USA-Mexico Day, among other things. Welcome into Soccer Morning here on WorldSoccerTalk.com. Thank you very much for listening. As always, big show for you today. Big, big, gigantic, fantastic. I say every single show is big, and I mean it every single time. It's coming from a place of sincere honesty. I'm not making these things up. This is a big show. And not only because it's USA-Mexico tonight, live from San Antonio on a terrible surface inside a dome in front of 65,000 people. But there's plenty of news today to go over. We're going to open up some questions when we talk about the uh, when we talk about USA-Mexico, when we talk about some of the happenings around the soccer world later in the show when the phone lines get open. We open them up, we open them up, up wide here. We are screening these days. Producer Trevor will take your phone call, but they're, they're wide open. Doesn't matter what you want to talk about, I will discuss it. I will have a something to say about it. Or I'll say I don't know anything about it and let you talk about it. We do it that way, too. Big show, as I mentioned. A couple of great guests. Leander Sherlackens will join us. We do a, uh, a Champions League review with Leander every now and then, and that's uh, what we're going to do today. Got a couple of games. Well, a review preview, actually, with Mr. Sherlackens. We've got uh, games yesterday. There were Madrid Derby. Throws up a goalless result. Juve takes a one-goal lead over Monaco in that tie in the uh, quarterfinals. You got games today. PSG, Barcelona, Porto, and Bayern Munich. Bayern Munich, all sorts of banged up. How will that affect what they do against the Portuguese side? So that'll be a good discussion. And then to preview the big CONCACAF derby, USA-Mexico. Is that what we call it? The CONCACAF... Conflagration, the Concacaf, is the USA. What do we call that? Does it have a name? Can we give it a name? I feel like it needs a name. All these other sports have rivalries with great names. Can we name that? Maybe that's what I'll put out there right now on Twitter. Hit me up at Soccer Morning. Let me know what's the name for USA Mexico. Also on the show, sorry, Brian Sharetta from Yanks Abroad, from the New York Times, from American Soccer. Now he'll join us to preview that game tonight. In San Antonio, we'll talk to him about some other issues surrounding American players. Americans abroad are his specialty. We'll go there as well. So that'll be good. That's at uh, 10.30, 10.30 a.m. Eastern. But we get into the news first and foremost here. And the news today, the big breaking news out of Europe, is that Jurgen Klopp intends to step aside as Borussia Dortmund head coach at the end of the season. Uh, Klopp is obviously a massive figure in the world of football, in the world of coaching, and he's going to have suitors. He, in fact, has said that he does not intend or he has no plans currently to to take a sabbatical, so this is not exactly a Pep Guardiola type of situation. I do love the fact that that Jurgen Klopp's throwing himself out there right now in the middle of April with a little bit of the season left. The wooing is going to begin, or if if it hasn't already begun, it's going to begin now. Imagine what it's like over at the offices of City Football Group and Manchester, England, where I can't say the guy's name. Who's the director of football, Trevor? Can you give me a phonetic pronunciation on that gentleman's name, formerly of Barcelona? Sick Mansoor sending text messages, lots of exclamation points. Klopp! Exclamation, exclamation. They have to be tripping over themselves. And if you're Manuel Pellegrini today, (laughs) how do you feel? How do you feel if you're Manuel Pellegrini today? But look, again... Klopp is going to have suitors. It might not be Manchester City. There's a good chance he doesn't go for the English bait. I think the English press is also tripping over themselves to line up Klopp 
for a big move to England. And, and it's it certainly, again, it's certainly possible City will throw lots of money at him. Is there any doubt in anybody's mind that, that Manchester City's going after Jurgen Klopp? I, I can't imagine. And I have questions about what this is going to mean for Dortmund going forward. And we'll have to grab an expert for this show in the next couple of days or weeks and discuss what a Borussia Dortmund without Jurgen Klopp looks like moving forward. How many of those players look for exits now? Who does who does Dortmund go after? This has been a trying, trying season in Germany for Dortmund, and yet they remain one of the big clubs of, of Germany, one of the big clubs of Europe, one of the sexiest jobs. They're going to have the opportunity to hire somebody good for that position. But in the meantime, how many people, how many of those players who have uh, come up under Klopp, who have loved and adored and been loyal to Klopp, say, yep, now I'm out of here. That's enough of that. I mentioned the Champions League results yesterday. Atletico Madrid, Real Madrid play to a goalless draw. The star, Jan Oblak, the goalkeeper for Atleti, many good saves to keep his team in that match. Gareth Bale missed an, an excellent chance, a guilt-edged chance, as they say. The The talking points coming out of that game are things like, did Carvajal bite Mandzukic? That's lovely stuff. Lots of WWE memes bouncing around on Twitter yesterday while that match was going on because it was just such a physical battle between these two Spanish sides. And it just goes to show you, I mean, I'm not sure it's some grand conclusion about this game, but it just goes to show you that even some of the most technical sides in the world, and that's clearly Real Madrid, you certainly would put Atletico Madrid with the talent that they have on that level, no matter how they play under Diego Simeone. Even those kinds of teams can go into a game against each other with a lot of passion, with a local rivalry, and play ugly soccer. And just play ugly, nasty, kick-em-in-the-groin soccer. Hopefully nobody got kicked in the groin. It's a little USA Mexico in the vibe of that rivalry at the moment. And Atletico Madrid seems to have Real's number, at least when it comes to keeping them off the board. Juve with the one nothing win over Monaco. Got a penalty there in that match. Monaco none too happy about the way that that went down. We'll get into that with Leander Sherlakins in just a couple of minutes. The games today, PSG, Barcelona, Porto, Bayern Munich. Those three games go off at 2.45 Eastern. And I again, I'm, I'm, I'm flustered. I, I go to Fox Sports 1, which has the Champions League. And I watch whatever game's there. Maybe I'll bounce over to FS2, which is going to have probably the other game. But you can't watch two games at once. Not really. I could, I suppose if I wanted to, I could find a way to pull one up on my laptop and have one on the television. But if you're watching two games, you're watching zero games. It remains true. In American Soccer News yesterday, Jill Ellis revealed the World Cup roster for the U.S. Women's National Team headed up to Canada this summer. Obviously, uh, this is there's a lot of pressure on Ellis to get this right. There's a lot of pressure on the USA women to win another World Cup. This is uh, right next door over in Canada. Now, you know the French are going to be good. The Germans are going to be good. The Brazilians pre- present a challenge. Who knows what's going to happen with Japan? The United States has the talent to go win this tournament. Hope Solo in the team, obviously. Ali Krieger, Kelly O'Hara, Christy Rampone. Got some youth in there as well, but obviously Megan Rapino, Lauren Holiday, Tobin Heath, Alex Morgan, Ali, Abby Wambach, Stine LaRue, Kristen Press, Amy Rodriguez are your forwards. That's a lot of firepower up top for the United States. 
Can they leverage that into a tournament win this summer? Up in Minnesota with the news that Minnesota United FC will be making the move to MLS comes a couple of stories on the stadium fight. Now, initially I saw this, and again, I'd love to get some more background on this. If anybody is up in Minnesota listening, wants to call in later on and talk about this, it's fine. We'll certainly look into getting Brian Korstad back on the show or somebody from Minnesota. It looks like Minnesota United FC and Bill McGuire has said, hey, we're going to pay for this stadium. We're going to pi- privately finance this stadium. But as with every stadium project, there are other things that come along with it. It's not just about building the stadium. You got to get the land all together. You got to have uh, the infrastructure there. There's going to be tax credits that usually come in, uh, the team asks for that come into play. And in the current environment, these things are difficult. Even if it on paper, on the surface, looks like something that works out for the uh, local, for the locality and for the team itself. So we'll look further into that as well. It, this, it, it's a stumbling block that has yet to be cleared. Doesn't mean it's going to derail anything up in Minnesota. But for the time being, nothing is finalized. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, Leander Sherlackins, freelance soccer writer extraordinaire, will join us to talk about some Champions League action. It's soccer morning. WorldSoccerTalk.com. Don't go anywhere. Be right back. Welcome back to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk with Jason Davis. Here we are back on Soccer Morning, joined now on the telephone by Leander Shalakins. You can find his work mostly by following him on Twitter at Leander Alphabet. He's all over the place. He's got a Yahoo column. He's got some other things working. Lots of good stories coming out of uh, Leander's typewriter these days. It's not a typewriter anymore, is it? It's a, it's a keyboard attached to a computer. Leander, how are you? I'm well, Jason. I actually handwrite all my articles. I was going to say, yeah, maybe you do it longhand. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Can you imagine a time before before typewriters and, and, uh, and computers? I, I can't even imagine. Being a sports writer in the 20s must have been hell. Uh, it, it, it's very hard to imagine it, and I, I kind of don't want to. Absolutely not, luckily. And we have a fancy new technology that allows us to talk about these things immediately after they happened, the Champions League quarterfinals ongoing uh, I sort of sketched out some things from yesterday, Leander, and and I and I talked about the physicality and the 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 heat and the passion of that Atletico Real game, and and maybe I mischaracterized it. Give me a sense. I mean, it produced no goals. That doesn't necessarily mean it's not a good game, but there are a lot of talking points out of it that seem to be more about you know uh, nasty things that happened on the pitch than than good things. It was a very tense game, and it was a very fiery game, and I think we're getting to that stage of the tournament now where you're seeing teams hedge their bets a little bit, where you know, teams that are usually attacking and adventurous, which, which Atletico isn't, to be, to be honest, but you know, Real Madrid can be uh, when it wants to be, um, where teams like that start to sort of worry about the outcome a little more than they usually would and start to be a little bit more cautious. And I think we saw in both games yesterday, um, in, in the Juventus-Monaco game as well, um, that uh, Monaco game, that... Um, 
teams get a little bit cautious and that the first leg becomes kind of like uh, teams feeling each other out and just kind of trying to limit the damage and really set themselves up for the second leg. Um, that isn't to say that, that Real wasn't trying to score. Um, they, I think they were dominant for, you know, the first three quarters of the game or so until Atletico had sort of a, a showed real signs of life late on. Um, but they just weren't able to get through. And I think for once the Atletico defense was was complicit a little bit in the creation of chances for the other team, which is rare because they're so good in the back. Um, in the third minute, Diego Godin kind of goofed up and gave Gareth Bale a really good chance. And that could have changed the game entirely if he put that away. Jan Oblak had one of, of many good saves. Uh, but I think that sort of set the trend a little bit where Real was, was knocking on the door, but they weren't quite putting it together in the final third. And Atletico didn't really um, capitalize on its chances to counterattack either. I mean, Griezmann a few times had, uh, had opportunities to get them going and, and didn't send the right pass or had his pass blocked. So it was a stalemate, sort of in every sense of the word. And, and as you said, I mean, and this is a bit a bit about these teams hedging their bets, a little bit about setting themselves up for the second leg. These two teams know each other very well. Um, they've obviously played on an even bigger stage in this tournament. Is this, you know, you look at the scoreline and you go, okay, well, I suppose keeping Madrid off the board is, is good for Atleti, but don't they need a lead going into a second leg to have any real sense that they're going to pull this out? Well, I'm, I'm not so sure because they've now played each other seven times this season. Um, Atletico Madrid has won four, and they've tied three. So they must be pretty confident that they can go across town to the Bernabeu, you know, stealing away goal the, the way they're, they're prone to, and just write this thing out on away goals if they have to. I mean, I think for them, maybe they were as concerned, um, sort of judging from the way they set up, about preventing an away goal for Real as, as getting, getting a home goal of their own. Yeah. Um, so I, I can't help but feel that Atletico's game plan was either to just get the shutout no matter what and to maybe try for something late on in the game when Real was getting tired or to just it kind of uh, shut the whole thing down and uh, and only really worry about the second game. Yeah, you know this is the, this is going to get into some some philosophy of football stuff here. I, I don't want to take it to a grand scale, Leander, but we we do talk about these things, and sometimes it's argued that the away goals rule is supposed what it doesn't do what it's supposed to do. It doesn't really um, you know give teams the impetus to go and 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 play aggressive soccer because they can be bitten by it. Is that is that a a factor here? I mean, look, Atletico Madrid is is prone to playing it the way the way that they did yesterday. Prone to trying to lock teams down anyway. So, is this an argument against the away goals rule? Do you see any problem there? Oh, I think so because with the away goals rule, the team that's at home is only incentivized to to prevent goals. And in the second game, the other home team is incentivized to prevent away goals. So in that sense, it sort of has this double negative effect that turns into that that's still a negative, unlike in math. Um, and so in that sense, it, it is a little bit harmful. But then when you, when you sort of question, well, what could the alternative be when you start to explore other ways of deciding games that end in an aggregate tie, well, you know, all you're really left with is, is going to penalties. And th that's, that's always sort of the suboptimal outcome, I think. So it's, 
it's certainly uh, a wiggles have their downsides, but I'm not so sure about what the alternative should be. Well, it's one thing to go to uh, to go to penalties when you've had a tie that's three three or or four four or something like that. It's it's another thing to have it go to penalties when you have no goals or it's it's one one, and and I think that would be the fear here is that we're going to have the narrowest of margins, which even if these things are, are are closely matched, and as we've already outlined, Atletico Madrid has had Real Madrid's number. That's not the way you want to see a team go to the semifinals. You want to see a team actually go out and win the game on the back of their ability to create chances or, or even a set piece. That's better. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's the, the, these things are tricky, and how do you properly incentivize teams to attack? I mean, that, that's probably something that you know, soccer rule makers and, and authorities have, have been struggling with for a very, very long time. Um, it's, it's, it's just really hard to incentivize them to put everything out there and to play risky soccer when there's so much money involved. And that's what it always comes yeah. back down to, especially when soccer's played at the, uh, at the level of the Champions League, where the difference between you know, uh, making it to one round or making it to another round can, can be $10 million. Yeah, um, so you know, with, with, with so much interest um, financially in all of these games, it's just always going to be really hard to convince some teams um, to, to do what I think is the right thing and attack. Yeah, and you know it does kind of take some sting out of the competition. This sounds like this this problem sounds like a doctoral thesis somewhere. Somebody's <laughs> got to be able to put their brain to how to incentivize teams to to make a go of it in these two legged ties. Uh, the other game yesterday, Juve and Monaco. You touched on it. It, it comes down to a fifty seventh minute penalty from Arturo Vidal. This is uh, this is not something Jardim was too happy about. Uh, I didn't get the chance to see much of that game, uh, Leander. What uh, what exactly played out and did Juve ultimately deserve to take away a one nothing lead? I, I think they did. I mean, there were a fair amount of shots on both sides. I mean, it was, it was again, a, t- a game that was very, very closely fought. Um, in the end, what made the difference was uh, a, a, another just splendid Andrea Pirlo pass to uh, Morata, I believe, who got clipped by Ricardo Carvalho in the, um, in the Monaco box. And then uh, uh, Vidal scored one of the... <laughs> Just an absolutely immaculate penalty, just ramming it in the in the top left corner. Um, nothing anybody could ever do about that. But uh, Juve had the edge on possession. Uh, I think it was 60 to 40. I think they deserved it. Um, it's not easy to score against Monaco. What I think is really interesting about Monaco this year in particular is that they don't have the star power they had last year. The, the summer before last season, they went on this huge spending binge. Um, they brought in, as, as you probably remember, James Rodriguez and Radamel Falcao and Joao Moutinho and all these expensive players. And then last summer, James and Falcao left. Um, but I actually think they're further along this year than they were last without those guys because they've become just a very, very savvy team. I mean, they're strong defensively. They give up very few goals. Um, so they, they gave up one yesterday, but in the last round... Uh, let me let me see here. They gave up one to Arsenal in the first leg, and two in the second leg. But if you then actually go back to the group stage, their their defense was just incredibly stingy um, throughout the tournament. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, this is a really really hard team to break down. And while they don't really have that star power anymore, they do. Um, 
you know, have this savvy now to really compete in this tournament. In the group stage, I just found that they conceded just one goal in their six uh, in their six games. I think they, so. It's it's interesting, and I don't think you can count out Monaco yet. You know, and that's it is sort of fascinating, especially after what they did to Arsenal in the last round. You you go back to the group stage. They gave up one goal. They they I think they scored four in the group stage. I think that's all they scored, and they yeah. and they actually think they won their group. So uh, so you you obviously see sort of their that that's their game boiled down to a certain extent and. To to give up to give up a goal on a penalty the way that they did again I understand why there's some frustration there on, on on the part of Monaco now the question is whether or not they can turn it around and if that's too much to overcome especially because you imagine Juve going not into a shell necessarily because that may not be the best thing for them but certainly to try to lock things down a, a little bit more than they did in this opener. I think they will. I mean, you know, Juve hasn't been to this stage of this tournament, uh, hasn't been to the semifinal since 2003, I believe. Um, so they're really keen to get back there. They're really good at home. It's, it's sort of a fortress for them. So um, I, I should expect them to, uh, to take this tie. And, and just, a, you know, just a few words on Allegri and the job that he's done at Juve, because there was a lot of question, him taking over for Conte when that, when that switch was made and Conte went over. Uh, to the Azuri, I don't know that Allegri had uh, the faith of everybody involved. And again, here he is. He's got his team. Obviously, they're going to win another Scudetto. And he's got them on the verge of a semifinal berth in the Champions League, which I think it's been 2003 since they've reached this stage. Yeah, so the, it, it's been really impressive, the job he's done, because, you know, he, he steps into a, a role succeeding someone who's had all this success, who's brought this club back to the top, that, that's just not an easy thing to do. And they've really not missed a beat. I mean, to be fair, the, the competition in Italy has, has been a few cuts below uh, for a little while now, but they're 12 points clear at the top. Um, you know, Lazio and, and Roma are sort of fighting for second place, but they're, they're not really anywhere close. They've lost just two games all season um, in, the, uh, in the Italian league, and they've been in first place since the fourth match day. Um, so, you know, almost going wire to wire there, which, which is very, very hard to do in soccer, as we all know. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really just a very admirable job, I think. I mean, they're, they're getting close to, to doing something special and to really being at that European summit again, where we sort of became accustomed to seeing Juventus. Uh, I'm going to look to uh, today's matches, PSG in the first leg at home to Barcelona. Uh, this is a tough test, obviously, for the French side, who has a... Uh, you know, has every design on winning Europe and 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 conquering things, uh, much the way Napoleon. Never mind, that's a terrible analogy. Um, but they are taking on Barcelona, who has been, you know, on fire for the most part. A couple of hiccups and and recent hiccups, but those you would imagine Barcelona is going to bring it for for PSG. How do you see this playing out? Well, it's going to be really really interesting because first of all, um, Paris Saint Germain has has a few issues going into this game. Uh, they've got Verratti and Ibrahimovic and Aurier who are uh, suspended. Um, David Luiz and Thiago Mota are injured and probably won't be playing. Barca on, on their side has Dani Alves who's suspended. But, but so they've got some real holes in that team, and most notably Ibrahimovic and Verratti. Um, PSG is a deep team. I think they can absorb that. But uh, they, they're running into a team in Barcelona now that, that you know, has had sort of a strange year but is on top again. And they uh, they tied with Sevilla on the weekend, which which they probably would have liked to avoid. But you know they're back in first place in La Liga, 
Um, they've got a two-point lead over Real Madrid. They've still got a few tough games, but they're probably, the way they're playing, they're probably the favorites again to, uh, to, to win the title again. But then again, if you look at Paris Saint-Germain, um, they'll take heart from having faced Barcelona twice in the group stage and having actually beaten them at home uh, 3-2 back in September. So they, they've given Barcelona an awful lot of difficult moments in recent years, and, and they know they can do it again. Although, you know, they, they are very, very dependent on Zlatan Ibrahimovic, so that will hurt. You know, it's, I, I've seen a couple of things. Actually, I actually saw Alejandro Badoya send out a tweet um, not too long ago, and this, this came in the aftermath of Zlatan's ban in France for that, uh, for that outburst at the referee. He said something like, the, the, the press is quick to say that, uh, that, that PSG actually plays better without Zlatan, and then when he's banned, oh my gosh, what are they going to do without him? It, it, which one is it? Because you know he, he's obviously a very influential player and can do amazing things, but sometimes you wonder if he unbalances that side just a little bit. Well, Zlatan is, is a player who sort of moves in his own spaces and kind of dominates uh, quite a large part of the field, or, or commands it, I should probably say, um, and I think this was the issue that Barcelona ran into, where he's immensely talented and he can do all these things with the, uh, with the ball and he can really change a game. But at the same time, he sort of slows down the play. And I think what you saw when he was at Barcelona was that they want to play quick and have all these little passes and connections and, and sort of be really fluid. And he's much more, uh, he's much more stagnant in a sense. He, mm-hmm. He's sort of this, this big, tall guy, um, who moves into his own spaces and kind of slows down everything around him, if yeah. that makes sense. It's, it's kind of hard to explain. No, I, but, I, I, I totally get you. It, it, is a, it is a matter of, yeah, it's a, it, it's a, <laughs> I, go ahead, I'm sorry. I'm not going to do any better than you just did. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's very hard to capture Zlatan in words. Um, but uh, now, now, of course, uh, according to Eric Cantona, Paris Saint-Germain has the best player in the world in Javier Pastore. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I, I thought that was funny. He said that the other day, yeah. which is interesting since the guy doesn't really watch soccer. Right. But um, I think without him, they will be able to be a little bit quicker. And maybe if they're going to play on the counter, they'll be just a little bit speedier and, and maybe able to exploit um, what can be some some real lack of speed in Barcelona's back line? So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, let me let's turn to to Porto and, and Bayern Munich. The storyline here is Bayern Munich is the walking wounded. They are banged up. They're missing a, a bunch of guys. That's not really what you want when you're going on the road in the Champions League. And yet, I, you know, I don't know. I still I would still have them as as favorites here. I think so. I mean, the, the, the list of, of injuries at Bayern is staggering. I mean, Alaba, Benatia, Javi Martinez, Ribery, Robin Schweinsteiger, um, all of those guys are out for the game. Um, FC Porto, to be fair, on their side, they might be without Jackson Martinez. It isn't entirely clear who has five goals and six appearances in this tournament. Um, but so it's, it's going to be hard to absorb all that for Bayern because Porto is sort of a clever and quick team. Um, very athletic, but at the same time, I mean, Bayern is, is looking an awful lot like Bayern again this season, um, especially in Europe, where in the last round, uh, they beat Shakhtar Donetsk 7-0 in the, in the second leg in Munich. So they are definitely the favorites, but like you say, they are banged up, so it's, it's not really a given for them. Yeah, that was, that game, that was uh, an interesting tie. I think it was 0-0 in Donetsk, if I, don't, yeah. if I recall correctly, and then they just throttled them back home in uh in in munich it'll be interesting to see 
obviously, look, if the pattern holds, we're going to see some tight, some very tight score lines, some very, you know, pragmatic, practical type of play out there, at least maybe in, in Porto Bayern. I'm not sure exactly what to expect out of PSG and, and Barcelona yet. Hopefully we see some, uh, some of the, the theatrics that those teams can put on. Should be a big day in the Champions League. Leander Shalakins, go find him on Twitter. Leander Alphabet. Leander, we didn't get a chance to talk about Jurgen Klopp. Maybe we can do that in the future. Um, we got USA Mexico, man. I got to move on. <laughs> Fair enough. I understand. All right, there you go. Thanks for your time, uh, Leander. We'll talk to him soon. Let's get Brian Sharetta Sh- on the line and talk about USA Mexico. Big game tonight. Is it a big game? I don't know. Whatever. Don't go anywhere. Be right back. Welcome back to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk with Jason Davis. It's time to talk USA-Mexico. Brian Sharetta, Yanks Abroad, New York Times, American Soccer Now. Brian Sharetta on Twitter joins us ahead of this game tonight in San Antonio. Brian, how are you? Uh, good morning, Jason. Uh, doing just great. Looking forward to... Uh to another uh, chapter in this rivalry. You know, is this going to be a, a significant chapter in any sense? Is this going to be, or is this going to be a, a rich, juicy chapter with lots of stuff that we're going to be talking about for weeks on end, or is this just going to be a blip in the long history of USA Mexico? Because guess what, everybody gets to make some money and have some fun and and hurl some insults. Yeah, I think I think we're looking at more of the. Um more of the of the latter here. I, I don't think that this is going to be significant. Um, you know, it's just they have a you know they they play so often. And right now, I think you know I just did a top ten best moments from a U.S. national team perspective on this rivalry. And then no no friendlies are even on the list anymore. Um, it's you know they they play so, you know they they play in the Gold Cup. They play you know the in Olympic games they play in obviously World Cup qualifiers sometimes even in the World Cup. So I think that um uh, that we're just looking at more of a more of the same with this with this rivalry. I think it's gonna be fun. But I don't really think it's gonna uh have a last uh there's nothing on the line. So there's yeah. really no lasting implications for it. But everyone's gonna make some money and be played on a bad field. But you never know. You might see some great uh some great either a great goal scored or a controversial moment. The fact that Rafa Marquez isn't in the team uh, probably reduces the drama meter by quite a bit. Yeah, you know, it's pointed out to me uh, that uh, this is a game, USA-Mexico, with no Rafa Marquez, who is still in the picture when he's available, and no Landon Donovan. And that's, you know, not that we haven't kind of gotten adjusted to the fact that Landon Donovan is no longer a U.S. national team player, but now that he's officially retired and and, and we're moving on, and, and again, as, Mar- as, as Marquez uh, is unavailable and perhaps will be moving on shortly, it definitely has a different feel. Even if it wasn't a friendly, I think it'd have a different feel. Yeah, absolutely. Those guys have had a long image in this rivalry, whether it be Rafa Marquez's red cards, whether it be Donovan's score goals, uh, last you know heroics. I think uh, you know those those two players have left an unbelievable stamp on this rivalry, and one that you know we'll have to see who comes up and fills this thing. You know who fills their shoes next. 
to be able to, you know, to add more chapters to this rivalry. Speaking of that, as we look ahead to the game tonight, uh, we know Mexico brought in a, a very young, very experimental team that, that Herrera is kind of ranging far afield as he looks um, perhaps to deepen his pool a bit ahead of two big tournaments this summer. Meanwhile, Klinsman calls in a bunch of MLS guys. He's got a couple of European-based players who, who happen to be available or were released. He's got some Mexican players, Mexican Ameri- Mexican League players, excuse me, in this team. Do we have any idea what what we ex- you know, what uh, what did we should expect to see tonight in terms of both formation and in terms of personnel? Um, I'm so beyond predicting what Clinton will do. I mean, he's. I mean, I've never. I try to predict a starting lineup every single game, and I don't think I've gotten one right. I think you know the safe bet is that you'll probably see a four-two-three-one formation. You know, that's kind of why not use a friendly against a good opponent to practice what you usually do in big games. That so I I could conceivably see Bradley playing alongside Beckerman in mm-hmm. the two, and I think you'll probably see more of a conservative center back pairing at at the start with uh, Beasler Gonzalez, and maybe uh, Ventura Alvarado gets in in the second half. I mm-hmm. think you're going to see Shea at left back, right back. I think is going to go to Yedlin. I mean, they 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 were they. They recalled him for a reason from Tottenham right after making his debut. It would be kind of a stunner if they didn't play him because, you know, why else would you remove him from his club when he's just trying to make his way in, you know, just make his way in uh, into that team. The attack is where things are going to get very interesting because, you know, without Dempsey, without Altidore, you know, who's going to be playing those outside positions? Uh, that's a big mystery. I mean, are you going to have Miguel Labar? Out there, you know, Julian Green, these are kind of guys that have been question marks for this team. Up top, you have Juan Agadello, who's only now coming back from, uh, you know, the year in the abyss. And then you also have Jordan Morris potentially making it there. I mean, there's a lot of question marks there, and there's only so few plus spaces to go around that I think that some of these guys are going to see significant minutes. I'm going to go back, uh, I'm going to go back to the defense quickly. Only because it might relate to to how that attack kind of shakes out. You you have Breck Shea at left back now. Greg Garza is also in this team. I would personally have Garza ahead of Shea at left back, but we've seen what Klinsman has done with this Shea uh, Shea shift, and he's playing at left back for his club team now. Uh, but like you said, kind of outlined those those wide midfield players. Is there is there a chance at all, or would it be a betrayal of what he's done so far for Klinsman to put Shea in the midfield and start Garza? Certainly possible. It's certainly possible. But the only thing I would say about that is when you look at some of the things Klinsman has said about Shea, particularly at the last camp, uh, you really kind of give you some inclination as to how he views this player. He says he has all the potential to be a, like a great left back. And the fact that he's playing there with his club kind of differentiates this from Jermaine Jones' situation where he wants him to play center back but he's not playing there for New England. Now he's going to get the reps there with his club. So you can bring him in there with the national team and kind of have a more smooth transition. So I think, you know, Shea's a little faster than Garza. Um, mm-hmm. Shea, you know, Shea, can, Shea can get forward into the attack a lot more. So if you don't have really wide attacking midfielders, you can get that from the fullback positions. Athletically, he offers a little bit more than what um, Garza can at this time. And perhaps if you're looking to attack more out of the fullback options, uh, Shea's your guy over Garza. Garza's a smart player. He's a good player. But if you're looking for like that explosiveness, mm-hmm. you know the, kind, the thing you can get from Yedlin on the right back sometimes, what we saw at the World Cup, 
exchange your guy for that. And I think Clemson is going to kind of lean toward that um, moving forward. I mean, he's, a, he's got a powerful left foot, mm-hmm. and if he can find a way to combine with the midfield while making runs out of the back, uh, that could drive a, a defense nuts. Um, so I think that he sees that in the, in the long run. I think he's going to try to get him. Guards will always be there at left back. Uh, Shea is the kind of guy who you want to kind of get him these reps to get up to speed and see what you have there. It's so interesting, uh, Ryan, I, and you've been covering this this program and this country and our, our our players for long enough to know that left back has been an impossible yeah. position for the United States, just impossible. I mean, we're talking about the most difficult position on the field to fill, and here it is, and I'm not saying that either one of these guys are transcendent talents, but they're both perhaps solid at this point. Certainly you could call Greg Garza a solid defensive left back, and you could say, hey, Breck Shea is improving defensively, and look how how dynamic he can be in the attack, and it's it's weird to have that luxury. It's very strange. Yeah, I did an article on Howler about this, and I talked to so many of the, of the left backs that have played for this team, and most of them have been just converts from another position where the U.S. national team coach dating all the way back to Dandler and even before has just tried to take a midfielder or a forward and just try to plug them in there and hope for the best. Uh, or usually maybe, maybe move a right back over to the left back position. That's kind of, and it's had mixed degrees of success. I thought Frankie Haydick at the 2002 World Cup was very good. It wasn't a long-term solution, but it was the best Band-Aid option we've, we've ever had, especially at a, at a high level like that. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. yeah, Shea's not a left, not not a left back, but he's still young enough where he can learn the position, and he's playing there with his club. Garza, it's a little bit more natural of a position for him. He grew up as a midfielder, but I like either of these options more than Fabian Johnson. Yeah, I think Fabian Johnson belongs in the midfield. He's playing there for the best club any American's playing with right now, uh, Melchior Gladbach, and I think you got to kind of cater to what you know when you have a player doing as well as Fabian Johnson, you got to kind of make sure he's in his most comfortable role. And he's always said that that's the midfield. So, yeah, in terms of these guys, Shea's a convert, but I think it, 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 it's a situation that fits better than it ever has in the past and makes sense for a guy who could probably maybe play a whole cycle there. Uh, back into the midfield, uh, you identify the possibility of Bradley and Beckerman. I certainly think that that's a pairing we've seen work before. Uh, if Klinsman, and, and we know Klinsman wants Bradley to be influential on the attack if he wants Bradley to push forward then Beckerman is the safety blanket behind him Uh, but in terms of what the future looks like because let's be honest I love Kyle Beckerman he is he's gonna go down as an MLS great he did yeoman's work at the World Cup last year and it was great to see him on that stage and getting that praise but he's not a he's not a an option for 2018 or at least he shouldn't be if you if you imagine a, a team moving into the future with some younger players, what's the next step? The next step is more or less there's a, there's a bunch of options that could emerge, particularly after the Olympics uh, in and you know in the U twenty World Cup after this youth cycle is moving up, then you're going to have guys like Louis Gill, Will Trap, and maybe even Mix can even play that role for for a cycle um, to be partner with Bradley in a four two three one. There's options there, too. I think that with Beckerman out there, there's a little bit more leadership and maybe, you know, it can help Bradley get a little bit more adjusted towards playing further back. I mean, if you saw at the World Cup, they try to move him all over the place to try to push him further up the field. You know, it, it, it's always a question with Bradley is, is where do you want him in that midfield? How far, how far up do you want him to push? How far up do you want him to stay and not drift back? These are all questions that Clinton really hasn't had the answer for. 
in his first four years, and I think he's going to have to try to get it because as much ground as Bradley yeah. covered at the World Cup, we all saw those numbers. You kind of want him to have a more defend, defined role, one that can help the midfield keep its shape. You know, you want him. He doesn't need to run that much for the team to be successful. So I think he could. I think he fits bad, great in that four-two-three-one. And I think, you know, I, I think that it's going to be come down to Louis Gill, Will Trap, and maybe some of the other young guys, but they're not there yet. So I think Beckerman is still going to be in that picture until the, the torch is passed. And I think he can get you through uh, the Gold Cup and mm-hmm. maybe some World Cup qualifiers as well. I mean, I don't think he, he, he doesn't have to be an option for Russia to be viable at this point. There's still a lot of tournaments and a lot of important games between now and then. Well, yeah, but it brings up the question of why this game? Why a friendly in a non-FIFA window, playing against Mexico when this is an opportunity perhaps to to maybe blood a, a younger player who hasn't seen this environment yet. I mean, we saw what he did with Julian Green in that Mexico-friendly ahead of the World Cup last year. That was a substitute appearance, obviously, and he could still do that. Um, but I, and I guess Mixed Discrude is, is experienced enough for the U.S. that maybe he doesn't need that. But I, I don't know. I just I, I wonder if if there was another option there. That, that well, he's not seeing, or if it's important to win this game. And hey, let's let's be honest. Beckerman and, and Bradley give you the best uh, best chance to win this game. Well, a couple things. Yeah, it's important to win this game. They have not played well since the World Cup. I mean, even really since that Ghana game, they haven't played, or since the port, the you know, the, the midsection of that Portugal game at the World Cup, they haven't played particularly well. They need to win. This is a big game. It's be a big crowd. A lot of people are going to be watching them. But at the same point, with bringing in new players, you, you can look at. You don't want to bring in new players in mass. You, you can only experiment so much. If you bring an entirely experimental lineup, I don't think you really get as much. Yeah. It's worth experimenting in some areas of the field while keeping them as keeping the rest of the team as steady, and then maybe using another game to experiment a little bit more in other areas. You don't want to try all at once because then you want to see how some players fit in with the veterans and Beckerman and Bradley are veterans. So, you know, if you're going to experiment up top, which I think they're going to have to do, you know, you don't want to have, you know, guys in back of them also being experiments. Sure. So I think Beckerman Bradley is a good constant. It's a good, reliable, it's a good, reliable part chunk of the midfield. It allows you to experiment elsewhere and see how those guys play with guys like Bradley and Beckerman. And then if they fit in well, then those guys become mainstays. Then you can start replacing Beckerman. I think Beckerman is probably the last of the guys to kind of get phased out because there's he's still good. He's still playing at a high level, and other areas are needed right now for experimentation. You still got you're still trying to get Yedlin to be a, a guy who can start for this team in big games because he's not been playing much for his club. You still need to get Shea in tune with the left-back position. You're still going to maybe introduce Juan Agadello tonight. You're still trying to look at Giassi Zardes. Mm-hmm. You need something. Some part of that team needs to be resemble what this team looks like at its top, at its best. It's, good. it's a good point. You do have a, a solid center there. A couple of anchors in the middle, and everything else revolving around it can be a little bit different. Um, and Speaking of that, moving forward, and I apologize if you, if you gave a name and I, it just went over my head. Who do you expect to play? I mean, if it's a four-two-three-one, I mean, we could argue about whether or not. I mean, that certainly that middle spot would be Dempsey's, and he's t- tends to play more of a reserve, uh, you know, a, a, a um, withdrawn forward type of role. Sometimes, it, who's that guy tonight uh, for the United States if they go with that formation? I wouldn't be surprised if it's Juan Agudelo. 
I really wouldn't. I mean, I think he kind of fits what you want in a four-two-three-one. He's strong, but he can move with the ball pretty well. Yes, there's some rust there, but when you look at the fact that there's no Altidore and there's there's no, you know, Zardes is still, you know, is he a winger? Is he a forward? We don't know how Clinton views him just yet. I hope he views him as a forward. But Juan Agadello, there's no mistake about where this guy belongs on the field and what his strengths are. And I think he fits that formation well. And I think he is a good replacement for Altador when he can't go. Well, well, but uh, but I'm actually I'm actually talking about who's who's if you if you're playing Juan Agadello up top in the Altador position, who's playing the Dempsey position? Well, there you can either get maybe perhaps the next move further up the field, but possibly I think the best solution for that right now is Lee Wynn. Okay. Uh, if he's you know if he's not rusty, um, you know I know he dealt with some injuries in the early part of the season. Uh, Lee Wynn fits that role. That's his natural position. I'm all about seeing what Clinton can do when he finds guys who play at their most comfortable position. I know Clinton likes to talk about putting guys out of their comfort zone. I like to see guys when they're in their comfort zone because they don't get very much time with these guys. I think it's kind of nice when they know that they're, when their roles coincide with what they're doing at their club and they're comfortable coming into the national team. I think that that would, you know, Lee Wynn fits that role right there. Yeah, I, I would like to and see... And on top of it, teammates, too, with one, with one Absolutely, Agadello. there's an understanding there. I'd like to see that, and I'd like to see Klinsman carve out a niche, a place for a player like Lee Wynn to exist in this team. I mean, obviously, when Dempsey's available, until he shows signs of rapid decline, you're going to include him in your team, and that's probably his spot. But I, but I, can, I can sort of imagine a future, Brian, where there's a, a little bit more of a pass-first player, a little bit more of a... A visionary player, not that Clint can't do that, but we, we know what his style is. He's going to take guys on. He's going to take his shots. If Lee wins that guy, then I can imagine a future where a player like, and, and I'm not tra- starting any hype trains here, but maybe a Harry Ship or a Gideon Zellalem will have a place in this team. Oh, sure. I mean, I, that's why I was kind of surprised that of the January camp roster that you didn't see more experimentation and taking a look at some of these younger guys who could fit in, you know, their, their time will come, you know, I hope it's before uh, next January, but you know, the Clemson want sometimes might want to phase these guys in slowly, but yeah, it's going to, the MLS season's still very young. Uh, Harry's now in his second year and he plays for a bad team or a team. Granted, they've, they've done all right to start this year better than I expected, but it's still, there's still a lot of question marks there. And uh, so it's slow and steady wins the race. With some of these guys, you know, bringing them in, you don't. Want, if you give them too much too soon, I think that could backfire. Mm. But I think, um, yeah, there is certainly some young players coming in through the ropes, through the ropes, and I hope that they're given a, a shot sooner than later if that role is what the national team demands. If, yeah. if it fits their strength as a player, by all means, you know, they can use that creative force behind the forward position to really make plays. Hey. May make plays and perhaps uh, combine off the wingers. Yeah, I, you know, I'd like to see some of that burden. Not that you know, again, if, da- if Bradley doesn't have to run as much, if Bradley can play deeper, if he can be, you know, less uh, less number ten and and more number eight, then I think that benefits the team in the long run. And and as I said, as as I said, I would love to see Klinsman actually carve out a place for those guys coming forward. Uh, it, it's a time, it's a time off, and and we do have a game tonight uh, to take in and, and see how they do. Uh, of the of the players we haven't mentioned yet, and I'm not sure if you even have been tracking that, who are you most interested to see on the field tonight? I mean, I'm not sure Julian Green's really come up yet. Is he going to get any time? Is there is there somebody else here that you're anxious to see play because they have a poten- they have the potential to be a, a, a serious uh, contender for contributing at the Gold Cup? 
you know, I'm still not willing to. I thought Ventura's Alvarado's uh, performance in the March friendlies was up and down. I still think he has a lot to give. He's playing for an outstanding club in Club America, and what a home debut this would be for him on the national team to play. And I use home in, in, in quotation marks um, because to be able to play, you know, in front, you know, against Mexico in front of a pro Mexican crowd, you know, neighbor East from that region of the country. I think it would just be, you know, an incredible coming out party that could really, you know, ignite some feelings in them uh, to be part of this team. I think he has a lot to give. Uh, you know, if you can play with club America, you can, pro- you can play with the United States national team. It, they're that good of a team. So he's the one guy I'm definitely looking forward to seeing Julian green. The only reason why is there's so few natural guys who can play out wide that I think him and Abara are two of the big question marks on this team, you know, where they stand because their, their playing time is very, very inconsistent. Mm-hmm. And we're still waiting to see a breakout performance from those two guys. And that matches what Klinsman has, uh, what Klinsman sees in these guys with so many repeated call-ups. So those kind of things are, are things I'm going to be looking for. Um, you know, you know, why is Morris getting a call up over Jack McInerney, who's who's a in his sixth year as a professional and and had been in and outscored Jordan Morris, had more goals last year than Jordan Morris did at Stanford. Yeah. So Clinton sees something in these guys that we don't see. So we're kind of waiting to see that transform into reality. And I think that with Morris, Ibarra, and Green maybe we get a little bit more of a glimpse of that. Uh, last thing uh, before I let you go, Brian, um, I was going to ask you for, for a prediction. I think that's probably pointless. Um, this could be, this could go anyway. Uh, I, I don't think it's going to be a blowout either way, but we're talking one, one, two, one, one, nothing even. Um, but the last thing I wanted to get to here is there's news out that Teshua Akindeli is 99.9% sure he's going to end up playing for Canada. Um, you know, obviously he had the option to play for the U S US and he got called up by Klinsman to take part in the camp. Is this, uh, is this the right thing for Tesho Akindele? I don't know what's in Tesho Akindele's heart, but I mean, these, these questions I think are a matter of heart. And if that's really wants, where he wants to play, then, then that's where he belongs. I think that you can't, national team is so much about passion. I mean, cause you're not with these teams very long and, and emotion can win these, these international games on a big stage. And if you don't really, if, if your heart's with another team and you're playing for another country, I don't think you're ever going to really live up to your potential. You know, you got to really, these games are different. They're di- so much different than club games in some respects. So I think that, yeah, if he really wants to play for Canada, that's where he belongs. I think that that's going to bring out the best in him as a player on the international stage. And I think that the United States will be able to get by with other options mm-hmm. just as fine. Brian Sharetta, follow him on Twitter, Brian Sharetta, who writes at Yanks Abroad and American Soccer Now and New York Times, and he's all over the place covering American soccer and doing a fantastic job of it. Brian, appreciate the time. Enjoy the game. If you have a prediction, go ahead, drop it in. I'm going to go with uh, 2-2. 2-2 sounds about right to me. Appreciate the time. Enjoy the game. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks very much, Jason, for having me on. Let's take a break. When we come back, we will open up the phone lines for whatever is on your mind. You can give me your Pick for USA Mexico, your formation. There's there's news on set bladder out there. Jurgen Klopp, lots of stuff happening. Get ready, line up 646-832-3909. Be right back.
Welcome back to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk with Jason Davis. We are back and the phone lines are open 646-832-3909 is the phone number. Let's get right to it. Lawrence is on the air. What's up, Lawrence? Hey, what's up? How's it going? Ah, man, it's great. There's lots of news today. Lots of things to talk about. Game tonight, San Antonio. Jurgen Klopp is resigning. What else is going on? Uh, the uh, Jill Ellis announced the uh, the roster, the twenty three man, well, twenty three woman roster for the Women's World Cup this summer. Yep. And my 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 feeling on it is that there's a lot of usual suspects in there, but in my mind, this basically just confirms that Christy Rampone, Abby Wambach, and Shannon Box masterminded Tom Sermoni firing. Oh, really? This is confirmation for you because the. The old guard. For me, it is, yeah. Okay, so the old guard making this team. And I think Shannon Box is maybe not a surprise. She's obviously a good player. She's probably, you know, she's going to have a role somewhere in this team. They're playing a lot of games on turf in a short period of time. Uh, but you imagine that this is a, this is just vindication for the theory out there that Sermani's youth movement is what, what caused his ouster. That, that is correct. That is what I believe. And do you think that this sets them up to be champions? Because ultimately, that's what matters, Lawrence, whether or not the women can go and win another World Cup. Uh, this year, I'd, I'd like to see them win, obviously, but I don't know that they can. I think we're probably, it's probably more, uh, we're as weak as we've ever been, and the rest of the world is as strong as they've ever been. So, you know, the rest, you know, we've always kind of been the big bad, the big bad bully on the block, and now, we're more of uh, the world has caught up to us. It is that is the dynamic that's playing out, and I, and I do you know this is the way my brain works. I love the dichotomy of the women and the men. The the women who have who had, who dominated and were the most talented team in the world, the most successful team in the world for a very long time, having been uh, kind of taking steps backwards, or you could as you said, the rest of the world is getting stronger, which creates this dynamic where there's a little bit of panic anytime they don't have big success meanwhile the men it's the opposite the men need to take steps forward to get close to everybody else and every time there's a modicum of success we latch on to it and suck it dry because that's all we've got you anything hey, else it, it happened yeah i know it's fantastic though anything else lawrence no that's it i appreciate the phone call let's uh let's move on we talked about a lot of U.S. Open Cup yesterday. Looks like Rob wants to continue that discussion in New York. What's going on? Hey, what's up, man? Yeah, I got a, I got a question for you. We don't have, because we don't have pro and rel in this country, right? Like, I don't think that there's, like, the publicity that goes around it. So you don't have small towns in the United States that are, or Canada or whatever that are going to get soaked over, you know, over an Open Cup. And okay. Okay. maybe well, if we had, you know what I mean? So, I mean, I, I know you guys talk about pro and rel all the time, and I'm all for it, especially, I mean, I'm a New York Metro guy, so it's like, I mean, when we when we went out to go last year, we went out to uh, Cosmos, and it was awesome. It was a great time, and there was, a, there was a lot of publicity around it. And, you know, it'd be much cooler if we could do something like that. Well, you know, okay. Look, that that's why you know you're getting I don't into. Know, I wanted to get your opinion. You're getting Rob. You're getting into a fundamental question of whether or not there needs to be some other uh, draw for the fan, other than hey, we can go knock off a big team, or whether or not it's even possible for smaller towns. And, I, and when I say smaller towns, I don't mean 
you know, 50,000 people. I'm talking about what still constitutes as a pretty damn big city in the rest of the world, whether or not the people in those towns will, you know, will be drawn to what is effectively a minor league soccer team without pro rail. And and it goes to, and then you're drawing it over to the U S open cup is, are these small teams in these, in the fourth division going to care about the U S open cup if they don't have the opportunity to advance from their league to somebody else's league? And I don't have the answers to that. I really don't. And I think that, that, that we cannot ignore the cultural factors in this country and just pretend as though if you gave those clubs the opportunity to advance divisions, suddenly that would create this groundswell of support. I don't think that's true. I think you've got clubs that need to build their fan bases. Maybe if they if ProWell was involved, it would give them a boost. I, I don't know. It, it, it's, a, it's a very difficult thing, Rob. Right. Uh, one, one other thing, too, just, yeah. I just wanted to point out real quick, if I can. Um, you were talking about yesterday the, the music in, in the United States, like getting, you know, whatever. I tweeted at you this morning that there is, uh, there is going to be a compilation, I guess, putting out, being, being put out very soon by Crowd Control Media that's focusing on a lot of different bands from a lot of different areas all over North America. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's pretty cool, man. Like my, my band's going you know, to get to be a part of it. And, uh, yeah, man, just wanted to point that out to you like while on that's air. That's awesome. That there are people working on something like that. That's awesome. It sounds better than the, uh, than the campaign. Thanks for the call, Rob. Better than the campaign that MLS did something like 10 years ago when they picked a, a group for every city and had them record what amounted to some sort of team anthem. Some of them were good. Some of them were really bad. Mark in New York wants to talk U.S. men's national team. What's up? Yeah, according to the forecast, uh, this will be the lineup for tonight for the U.S. national, uh, national team. Oh, we're breaking Remando news. Goal. Uh, who? Ramondo? Go ahead. Yeah. Remando, Shane, Omar, Bisner, Evans, Beckerman, Bradley, Corona, Mix, Sardis, and Wondolosk. That will be the starting lineup for, uh, for the you know, and, and that's the thing. Like, I, I, I want to react to so much of what you just said, but I cannot, I cannot uh, deny that that's very possible that your Clinton would throw out Brad Evans at right back, who has caused a lot of consternation among U.S. fans, and Chris Wondolowski up top. When everybody wants to see what Agadello can do in there, you've got a guy like Jordan Morris in the team. Who look, yeah, he's a college kid, but if he's talented, give him a shot to play. I mean, the game, again, the game ultimately doesn't matter. It's I would not be surprised. I mean, we obviously can't confirm that until the U.S. drops their roster an hour before game time because that's what Correct. that's what Yergi likes to do. But I do appreciate the call, Mark. <laughs> Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Um, the only problem that I have with the lineup, or at least with the with the way they're playing, is for Michael Bradley to be taking out um, the corner kicks, especially when he's one of the best setters in the team. Yeah. Um, yeah. You have Corona there. You have Mix there. Anyone else? Well, I mean, look, okay, I mean, especially when they have when they have a high advantage against Mexico. Yeah, look, you obviously uh, is obviously a tall player, and you imagine he could win his share of balls in the air. But he, as we saw with that free kick he took in Switzerland, he has the he has the ability to to curl a ball. Why not put him out there? Well, let him take those corner kicks as well. Right. Anything else? That's it. I appreciate the phone call, Mark in uh, New York. Let's move on to uh, Pablo in Maryland who wants to talk USA Mexico. What's going on? Hey, how's it going? This is Pablo in Maryland. Yep. How you doing, man? Good. good. I can't believe I just listened, heard uh, Trevor's voice for the first time. That was a very interesting experience. <laughs> yeah, was it everything that you hoped it would be? Did it just... Very uh... manly voice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. He's got a radio voice and refuses to come on the radio. What, what's on your mind, Pablo? Oh, man. 
Hey, well, I'm, you know, I'm a Mexican-American rooting for the U.S., but, you know, I'm excited about this game. I'm always excited about USA-Mexico games. I know we're not playing for any anything today, and that's fine. You know, that's the U.S. has always played against Mexico at least once a year in a friendly game, so it's not something that we should be surprised well, about. Well, that's, that's not necessarily um, true, by I, the way. That, that's, yeah. only, that's, only so, true, that's only true in certain years. Like, if you go back and look at the history, there are years, Gold Cup years and, and World, Qual- uh, World Cup qualifying years, where they don't play friendlies. I mean... I, I see what you're saying. I, I'm just. I, I think it's too much. Anyway, go ahead, Pablo. Yeah, I wanted to say something in regards to your, um, actually, a, con- your comment, a discussion you were having with uh, Jared on the Best Soccer Show about how you guys think it, this game is losing importance, or it's not as big of a deal as it used to be in the past. Not enough. The rivalry is there, and I actually got started thinking about that. And you know, for me, it's always been a rivalry. I've always seen it like this, but it's true that I've also felt it felt it like it's not. At the same level, and I think, I don't know what you think about this, but one of the reasons this for me is I think the U.S. has been superior, or, you know, we've won more games against Mexico than they beat us um, yeah. in the past, what, three, four years? Yeah. And I think we've, you know, wow. it's, they've, they've, they've not, they're not anymore the, we're not the underdogs anymore. They're not like the invincibles, which, you know, create all this passion in us. We've, in, right now, we're better, you know, we've been a better team than them. So I think that's something that contributes to that. At least, you know, but when I talk to a Mexican friend, you know, they see it as a big rivalry and a hated rivalry. They don't share kind of that same um, feeling that you guys were talking about. So well, I, I, I mean, guess that's my, my two cents there. Look, this is obviously a subjective personal thing. Thanks for the call, Pablo. i got to move. Uh, this is a subjective personal thing for how you feel about the rivalry, especially when it comes to a friendly match in the middle of the week when, when not everybody's available and these teams are, are B or C or D teams. I, I, you know, I think that, and he, he, thanks for crossing the streams, by the way, Pablo, from the Best Soccer Show. I think that some people probably do feel still get fired up for it. And I, and I do think it's a matter of your perspective and whether or not you th- coming from a, a place of we have something to prove or not. I just don't see the United States as having something to prove tonight based on what Klinsman has done with his team in recent friendlies. Eddie in Brooklyn, you had you a bone to pick? I mean, I was, but you kind of backtracked a little bit when you were talking <laughs> to your boy in the first place. Yeah, you know what? That was just strategic. That was strategery on my part. What's going on, Eddie? I mean, you kind of damped on my fire because I was really heated up. I was like just waiting. Like, I right, wait for the segment, drop my two cents, and you kind of backtracked a little bit. So I really don't even want to talk about that. All right. You guys um, want to talk about Jurgen Klopp? Yeah, I want to talk about Klopp. Um, maybe it's because I grew up in an environment where money really wasn't there and I can kind of look past money in certain situations, but I don't see why Jurgen Klopp would want to go to City. I mean, David Silva, um, Yaya Toure, uh, Vincent Company, Hamas Milner, I like to call him Hamas Milner. You know, a lot of these players, they're either approaching 30 or they're already past 30. Oh, yeah. So it's not necessarily that they have a bright future ahead of them that well, they have these yeah, prospects. But, but, and I get that they have money and they can buy players, but financial fair play comes into play. Let me let me flip it and, for you. Eddie, let me flip it for you for a second. Yeah, financial fair play is a consideration. But imagine imagine instead of presenting it that way, you got Milner that's probably going to be leaving or, or, or ready to be phased out, Yaya, David Silva, as you mentioned. Instead of that, maybe you present it as, We've got money. Yeah, we've got financial fair play to be concerned about, but we've got money probably more than anybody else in the world, and you get to build your team. And you know what? As long as we're not running afoul of those considerations, we can go buy players. We can go get guys. You can help us develop the next generation of City stars. All right, but you're running under the assumption that City is the kind of organization that's going to allow Klopp to have the environment where he can actually cultivate it, look, if his any, own group if because they, if they, it's a very volatile environment. Oh, no, absolutely. But if they're going to give, they're going to hand that 
if they're going to hand out responsibility to anybody, it's going to be to a guy like Jurgen Klopp because they should know that profile-wise, consistency. I mean, I, look, I don't know what goes through Sheikh Mansour's head. I don't know what what those guys are thinking, you know, around the board, uh, around the boardroom table. But I imagine that they should be thinking, we need to be consi- We need to find somebody we can lock down th- two, three, four, five years to give ourselves a chance because you keep messing around with the way that they have with these coaches, Pellegrini being the latest one, and you just you're never going to give yourself a chance to establish anything because you're not Barcelona, because you're not Bayern Munich. You are Manchester City. That's what I'm saying though. Go ahead. No, but what I'm saying like it's all right. You look at Roger Dimension, he wins a title, he gets fired. Mm-hmm. Pellegrini wins a double, he's gonna get fired. There's not even a guarantee that they're gonna make champions the yeah. way they're going, there's a chance Liverpool might surpass them. Yeah. So if I'm Jurgen Klopp, I kinda of pointed back to um unfortunately I'm a Dolphins fan, so uh, Jim Harbaugh, when they were, he was being pursued by the Dolphins, they were trying to, you know, paint this picture. You know, you can do your own, you can build your own team. Or you'll be the star of it. But it's Jim Harbaugh looked at the Dolphins like, look, it's a boss organization. They fire coaches that they yeah. like. They have yeah, no future. Right. They have you're no real plan. And if I'm Klopp, I kind of look at City the same way. And there's better options out there. By, by the way, the, if Arsene Wenger doesn't win the FA Cup, that's a job that's open. Uh, that's more of a, a, a an attractive job for me. Yeah, you know, I, I think that's possible. I I I think the city's got to be the front runner just because they're going to throw the most money at him. That doesn't mean they're necessarily going to get him. And I think that Klopp is definitely the kind of guy who looks. He's going to consider his options just the way that Pep did when he took his sabbatical and ended yeah. up at Bayern Munich. Thanks for the call. I appreciate it. And I don't think Klopp is about the money too. No, I I, don't, I think you're right. I think you're right. I got to move on. Thanks a lot. There goes uh, yeah. Eddie in Brooklyn. He had a bone to pick, but he didn't actually pick it. Dan in Portland, what's going on? I lost Dan in Portland. All right, let's. Uh, oops, I hit the wrong. I'm hitting the wrong buttons. Look at that. People are going to be so mad at me. I hit the wrong buttons on our call screening setup. Oh, my apologies, Vincent Toronto. I did not hang up on you. No, you did not. No, I hung up on a couple other people who are going to be so angry. But go ahead. That's all right. You you just you, you have to get to me right somehow. No, somewhere. no, I just you know this thing is there's there's buttons to click, man. It's technology. You gotta. Yeah, so I, <laughs> I we need to we need to get a couple of people back on the line. Dan, I apologize very much to him, and I think Josh in California, I apologize to him as well. Vince, what's up? Uh, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a good day here in, uh, in 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 Canada. I suppose Canada so- in Canadian soccer circles. I mean, uh, you know, you 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 talked with uh, uh with Brian Shredda about it a bit, but you know, uh, Floro mentioned yesterday in a media call that yeah, Tesho was ninety nine per ninety nine point nine percent going to play for Canada. Um, and you know, uh, at the end of the day, you know, it, it makes more sense realistically for him to play for Canada than the United States. He mm-hmm. he, it's not a guarantee, but he has a much easier time getting playing time for Canada than he would with the U.S. I mean, I, I tweeted it out to you guys that. You know, Clinton's calling up Jordan Morris ahead of Akindele. So really, you know, where is Akindele on on the death chart for uh, for the U.S. Uh, in Clinton's eyes? Yeah, well, you know, you have to wonder though uh, whether these players are considering my what thing, what life might be like post Jurgen Klinsmann. And yeah, the problem with that though is it's still three years away. And, and maybe Akindele saying it to himself, okay, if I'm not rated here, then by the United States and Klinsmann is going to be weird about this and go grab a college kid and call him up. I don't want to wait until after the 2018 World Cup, especially since he is going to have the opportunity to help Canada in tournaments before we even get to, to whether or not they're going to make the hacks. So uh, I, I think it's the right thing for Akindeli. I want to see him. I want to see him play. And, and, you know, this is again, this comes back to Teal Bunbury and, and the decision that he made. And yeah, injuries played a major part of that. 
uh, part in, in Bunbury dropping off uh, the, the U.S. radar. But he's back to playing pretty well. He's got a new role in New England. You could imagine that Canada could really use Teal Bunbury right now. And if he was eligible, he'd probably consider it. But it's too late. Yeah, I'd, I'd argue with that uh, simply because of the gluttony of wingers that Canada currently has and a number of wingers who I'd say are almost as good or probably going to be better than Teal Bunbury, especially if Teal Bunbury uh, continues being an injury-prone oh, player. You know, you know, God forbid. But Get, get off your uh, high that, horse, ha- that, that can happen. That can be a part of it. <laughs> um, you, uh, what were you going to say, Jason? I said, get off your high horse. You're Canada. You take whatever you can get. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> You no, know, and this is the thing with Akindele, right? Because he he would slot in immediately. Um, it's weird because Floro, all of our forwards can either play at forward or they can play on the wings. And depending on what what Floro had for breakfast, you know, uh, he'll he'll change it up. So a guy like Akindele, he plays on the wing for Dallas right now. I don't know if he's ever going to play a pop for them while Blas Perez is fit. Um, I, I don't know if Flora's going to play him up top. Maybe we play with a single striker system. I don't think that suits uh, Tesharak and Dele's, uh play style. No. So, you know, he'd probably be on the wing, and he'd probably be a starter. I mean, he'd probably be fighting with uh, with a few of our guys. Um, but, you know, uh, the the media call from yesterday, uh, Floro uh, called out MLS a bit and called out a lot of the clubs um, because he, he's unhappy with, uh, with how, you know, uh, clubs will bend over for the U.S. when Klinsman... Uh, we'll call up players like like for this for this Mexico friendly, um, but we'll might we'll whine and complain when when Florida wants to call up players. Um, Josie and Bradley joined uh, joined the U.S. for their friendlies in Europe, while Jonathan Osorio stayed with Canada. Um, and it was kind of implied that Toronto FC, you know, started complaining to Floral, oh, you know, we need Jonathan, don't take him, please. But you know, for, and Floral basically said, I don't like that Klinsman doesn't get this crap from American cl- or from from MLS clubs, but I do, and it's not fair. And, and Floral basically said he's not going to bother with that anymore. Uh, and you know, clubs can complain all he wants; he doesn't care. He's going to call them up regardless, which which I like because. For too long, it, it, that's been a problem with the Canadian team. Yeah, interesting dynamics right at work there. And I, I'm not gonna—I don't have anything to say except that we're America, Vince. I'm sorry. This is the way it is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. I appreciate the phone call, man. Thanks a lot. No problem, Jason. Take care. There goes Vince uh, in Toronto again. I, I dropped a couple people. I apologize, Dan and Josh. You can uh, call up and uh, yell at me a little bit later. Jose's on the line from Dallas. What's going on? Hi, Jason. How are you? I, I'm good. I'm good. What's on your mind today? Uh, well, uh, just in reference to the last guy who called, um, I originally wanted to talk about Wondolowski and DeAndre Yedlin, but I, I do think that the MLS caters a lot to uh, the United States. Um, I'd like to see the Canadian players not take up a uh, an international slot for the American teams. Mm-hmm. I think that would benefit uh, the, the young Canadian players and um, that would be beneficial for them not only to just play in the Canadian clubs. Um, so I've got that on my mind in that regard. I don't know if you have any comments on that. Uh, look, we've discussed that that issue on the show. We've had guys from up in Canada who have complained about it. It, it clearly is a, a major uh, a major issue for Canadian playing uh, player development. Uh, it's clearly a major issue for Canadian teams that they have international roster spots and, and th- th- their situations are, are dictated by the rules that MLS has laid down. And MLS has yet to, I think, to their satisfaction, addressed whether or not this is a labor law issue or, or something else. And, and people tell you that it really isn't, that there's really no reason for it, but MLS is uh, 
you know, again, favoring American players over Canadian players. Right. Uh, now, I'd, I'd really like to ask your thoughts on regards to DeAndre Yedlin. He finally gets his debut. What the hell is Jurgen Klinsmann doing calling him up, uh, having to fly all the way to the United States? He then has to go fly all the way to Europe. Maybe that will disrupt some of the momentum. Yeah. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. I, look, I, I, I said that uh, on a different show. I, I made that argument. I'm not a fan of this either. Even if DeAndre Yedlin isn't going to play for Spurs this weekend. By the way, Tottenham Hotspur... You're a 2015 MLS All-Star opponent, so that's exciting. Even if he wasn't going to play for Spurs on the weekend, he still benefits from the training time. He still benefits from being there in under Pochettino's watch, having an opportunity to continue to make his name. And I don't know that, you know, I, I guess if you don't have a right back and you don't have anybody else to call up, I mean, Tony Beltran's available. I, I don't know. It, it's, I don't think it's, I, I think yeah, I'm with but, you on I mean, this. he he loves to change players out of position. He's done it for the entire time he's been here. You tell me there's not one guy in the MLS that he can maybe put over there. Yeah, um, maybe you're right. I don't know. I just, <laughs> I'm a little hesitant. Little uh, Julian Green coming. Uh, I don't understand what that is. And honestly, I like Beckerman on the team. I think I think he's one of the best players in the MLS. But Chris Wondolowski, come on, I uh, I, I love the I guy. Know. But I'm not sure. I'm not sure this is the time for, for him this, to be getting minutes. At this point, I think we're just beating a dead horse on Wondolowski. Thanks for the call, Jose. I appreciate it. Look, I, I know people get frustrated that he continues to get called up by Klinsman. What for whatever reason he's a professional that Klinsman likes. <clears throat> he obviously knows how to play in the box, and his movement is good, and he works really hard. And I think those things matter to Klinsman. And it's a friendly in the middle of the week when you can't call up anybody from from Europe. I mean, I. This is what it is. Scott in California, what's up? Hey, yeah, kind of uh, kind of going off that last thing about Wanda. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I'm a San Jose Earthquakes fan and love Wanda, but uh, I don't know if it makes sense for him to be on the uh, men's national team right now. Um, but, you know, I want to talk about kind of is what is Dom Kinnear doing with the San Jose Earthquakes? Um, he's coming out. Um, you know, we got Barrera, but we haven't seen Barrera playing on the left side. And, uh you know, I really love Cato, but and I Naisi too. But I mean, he scored last game. But I you know I think we should be having Wando and Innocent up top, two up top of, and kind of confused with what uh, Dom Kinnear's game plan is with the San Jose Earthquakes coming in. Well, I mean, um, look, it's Dom Kinnear. It's it's a guy that you know from his history, not uh, not just in San Jose, obviously, but from Houston, where he was that massively successful. Don't you think? And there are guys in that team that I want to see play too, and I and I'm look, I'm right on board the Tommy Thompson hype train. But you, you have to give you have to give Dom Kinnear the benefit of the doubt. He deserves it based on his track record. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I'm on the Tommy Thompson train as well, and he get, he got in uh, some gameplay in the last game. Um, and yeah, I mean, I definitely want to see where it plays out. But I'm right now, I'm kind of you know he is a you know from my understanding he's a four four two type of guy. And he's been getting this four three three Wanda's in the back right. You know, people are adapting and kind of playing around with things. But um, you know, we've gotten. I think you know, I would say we've gotten some goals that in the you know against Seattle was really great, um, but has been kind of not at the level of goal scoring and attacking that I would have liked to see. You know, we have MPG, um, but yeah, I would really love to see Tommy get some more play in and have Shea coming up and uh, Salinas um, playing on the left side or right side not necessarily up top, but in the midfield. And I just haven't seen that 4-4-2 that, you know, I really wanted to see out Dom Kinnear and kind of 
play Innocent and Wando up top because I think that's a dynamic attacking duo right yeah. there. Appreciate the phone call, Scott. Uh, talking a little quakes there. Let's go stay in California and talk to Robert in L.A. What's going on? Hey, good morning, Jason. Good morning. I want to talk about the U.S. Open Cup real fast. Is that okay with you? Yeah, absolutely. Hey, I uh, I listened to yesterday's show and uh, with your guests talking about it and how to attract more more viewers, like the mainstream, and just more more people in general. But I was thinking, like, if you look at what what like March Madness do, like basketball and college football, they have the thing where they rank, where they put like a number. And I was thinking, if if they rank every team, like if you took the top American team, like right now FC Dallas, and they are playing. Uh, Chicago Fire, you have like one against 15. And then you took the lower teams, if you have like, you know, SD Buffalo against number four, New York Red Bull, it'll be an upset because if you have those numbers, it kind of creates like a, a gap and then you uh, do have those Cinderella stories. You want, you want a seeded tournament. Is that what you're telling me? Well, if you, if you, no, you just, you see them based off the points that they currently have at that time. No, no, I understand. But I mean, like, you, you want to attach that number to the team. For the tournament, for publicity's sake. Yes, because it, it'll make a great story. Like number ten beats number one, or number yeah. fifty beats number two. Yeah, it, just, it, it I, attracts the mainstream. If I, you know, if you, if you understand what I'm trying to say. No, I do. I, I think you're. I think you're, I think you're onto something here, Robert. I think this is interesting. Certainly, from the NCAA uh, tournament example, when you have when you're talking about you know fifteen and a two, a sixteen and a one, that's what get people. That, 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 that's what gets people's juices flowing. And if you can give people who might not know who these teams are, I mean, you can you obviously recognize when FC, you know, that FC Buffalo is not an MLS team. But if you give them sort of a number in the overall tournament, and then if there is an upset, if Cal FC is ranked, I don't know what would they be ranked, forty fifth, fiftieth, something like that in a ninety team field, then and they beat a Portland Timbers who's ranked number, I don't know, whatever time, whatever they were at the time, ten, eleven, twelve. That's big. That's absolutely huge. I guess, yeah, like last year, um, uh, you had like Seattle, like number one against Philadelphia, which was like 16 at a time. So you can create those Cinderella stories. And yeah. I just think that's one aspect that I hope they can see. I mean, just thinking outside the box here. Yeah, no, no, it's interesting, Robert. And uh, our friend Josh Hackler from the Cup.us is on Twitter commenting. It says uh, it would be really hard to do with teams in many different leagues. And that's obviously, yeah, that's obviously an issue, is you'd have to find some kind of system there. For these uh, for for these teams to be to be ranked or, or or seated, but I do think that's interesting. I mean, you need again, if you can find a hook, and, and that's a simple hook. Um, Eddie says on Twitter, I tweeted you this idea days ago. It's how people care about Gulf State University college basketball every year. All right, sorry, Eddie. Damn. Yes, sorry. By the way, uh, I wanted to mention here. Uh, we might uh, take one more phone call before we get out of here. It's a, it's a long show. You guys are animals today. It's the 26th anniversary of the Hillsborough disaster. I would just get, well, I want to use that opportunity to point you in the direction of that Hillsborough documentary. We covered it in depth last year when it came out. It's available on Netflix as far as I know. I think all of the 30 for 30s are still up there. It is a powerful powerful film and if you don't if you've heard about Hillsborough but don't know the background, I don't know when what went down that day. Definitely go check it out. I very much enjoyed it, and uh, we had the uh, director on last year. His name escapes me, but it's a, it was a good show. So go check that out. Let's uh, let's go to this last call, Ray in Milwaukee. What's up? Hey, uh, I just want to give my scoreline real quick, and I think it's going to be a three-two. Uh, I think uh, Michael Bradley is going to play at the top of that diamond formation. I think he's going to play higher up the field. 
And uh, there's just one admission that I would really like to see that McInerney kid, even even if he just sat on the bench, uh, only because he's going to be the, this is the closest he's going to get to in an environment in Azteca. Uh, in the following week. Yeah, you know what I made that argument earlier. I mean, it, you know, I think there was, I, we obviously saw what Klinsman was doing with that Mexico friendly in Phoenix in 2014 with, uh, I think it was 14 or maybe it was 13, whatever it was, 2013, when the United States played Mexico and Julian Green came on and got, you know, 10 minutes to the end of the match. I think that that was clearly a, an opportunity to get him, and he had just obviously he had just been declared as a U.S. national team player and made a switch. But it was an opportunity to get him in that environment. There are players in this system or in this pool who would benefit from that environment. I'm not sure I'm on the Jack Mac train anymore, but I could see why you would look at what what Klinsman called in and go, "Really, do we need Chris Wondolowski in this team, or should we be taking a young forward who, even if he doesn't ever get off the bench?" would benefit from what you just said. Yeah, that's what I agree. I think it's going to be uh, it'd be real interesting to see how good uh, Fox does uh, its coverage for today's game as well. Uh, I know they got Champions League, so I don't know who's doing the game for uh, the U.S. Oh, they've got the whole crew down yeah. there. Rob Stone and everybody is down there. I think they're just going to do their Champions League, and they did this yesterday. They do their Champions League coverage from their remotes uh, set up in, in San Antonio. I don't think it's that big deal. Thanks for the call, Ray. I appreciate it, man. This may be the longest show we've ever done. You guys have been a fantastic day with the calls. Absolutely on fire. And Eddie is pissed at Eddie, I'm sorry, man. I really am. Like, I don't know what you want me to send you flowers. Should, do I need to send you a card to apologize for not giving you full credit? You know, two, two people can have the same idea. And yeah, I missed it on Twitter. My bad. Follow us on Twitter, by the way, at Soccer Morning. Uh, hit us up with any ideas. Keep this conversation going. Get stuff on the U.S. Open Cup. Obviously, the ranking system that Eddie's mad at me about because it was his idea. There's clearly uh, stuff going on with USA Mexico today. Um, and, uh, and yeah, go to backheel.com slash store to get yourself a Soccer Morning mug, which I'm holding up for the camera right now. You can go to uh, 3NLFC.com to get a T-shirt. I had some complaints this morning about the pastel blue. I dig it. Uh, but you know, if you don't, we'll talk to the guys over at three nail and see if we can work out something else. I told Trevor yesterday, we got to get stickers for this show. I need to put a big, I want to put a full, full weir windshield soccer morning sticker on my car. Yeah. Yeah. We need wall bangers. I want to, I want a soccer morning wall bangers or what are they called with fathead? Whatever they're, whatever, whatever one works, whichever is better. See two people, same idea. See how that works. All right, got to get out of here. Thank you very much to our guest, Brian Sharetta and Leander Sherlackins. Both of them excellent. Go follow them on Twitter. Woo! Enjoy USA Mexico. Enjoy Champions League. Be back tomorrow to cover it all. Thanks a lot for listening. See ya.